This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Do you think the Torah is more capitalist or socialist? So, uh, the question already assumes that socialism and capitalism are in the world uh, at the time of the Torah, but the Torah predates both of those notions. So, the question we really need to ask ourselves is, what is the economy or economic system that the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, is is advocating for? And I, I actually think it's neither. Um, Hmm. It has many components of capitalism, particularly the core component of capitalism. We've lost track of the fact that capitalism means the right to own private property uh, and own it. And the Torah clearly believes in the right to own private property. Otherwise, in the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't have a rule like don't steal. Uh, You can't not steal if somebody doesn't own something previously Hmm. uh, or do not desire that which your fellow has, because if it wasn't his private property, uh, you could not uh, transgress desiring somebody's property. So private property is clearly a core tenet of of the Torah. And in my book on Leviticus, I chart the origins of of where that comes from, partially in Exodus, and but mostly in Leviticus. And but the second component of it is is that the Torah doesn't believe in in, in wealth redistribution. In fact, uh, the Torah doesn't believe that the economy is a fixed size that you need to redistribute. Rather, it believes you can grow the economy by empowering people uh, to do more. And we can see that, uh, we'll come back to the Genesis part of it, maybe when we talk more about this volume of the book, but the uh, the Torah's notion of charity does not involve giving people what you would call alms for the poor, uh, but instead inviting them into work in your field. So when the, the Hebrew Bible says, uh, leave over the corner of your field, what it means is leave it over so the poor people can come and harvest on their own. They have to work to earn it. Or when it says pick up the dropped grains from the field or the dropped grapes from the field, they need to come in and look like the last of the workers. They need to do work. And that way they learn a skill, they empower themselves, they get the dignity of going to work. Um, and then they pick up uh, leftovers. And while at the same time, the, the wealthy of society, the landowners show that there's abundance. There's more here to go around. And so we're not fighting over fixed resource. And then the last element that I would say is what I call it in in my book on Leviticus is the responsibility economy. And the book on Leviticus is only out in Hebrew so far. Um, In Hebrew, it's called Kalkalat Achva, which translated literally is the fraternity economy, but better adapted to English is the responsibility economy. And it says something Mm -hmm. like this. Um, We aspire to achieve success, wealth, creativity, and productivity as individuals and as society. Um, Part of that is to also empower other individuals and communities in society to do better and acquire wealth. And we are expected not to provide handouts, but to empower people either through interest-free credit, right? You wouldn't give somebody a loan if you didn't expect them to pay it back. So it's obviously, which is another one of the tenets of the Bible. So you obviously wouldn't do that if they didn't have a business to start to return uh, your money. Uh, And we want to empower people to get on their own feet and become more successful uh, over time. If I have one more second, I'll tell you that there's an example of that that I bring in the book, in the Tree of Life and Prosperity. It comes right out of the first patriarch, which is Abraham. So what do we know about Abraham, right? 
So Abraham is born in a foreign country north of Israel, north of the land of Canaan, and he comes south. He leaves his, his father behind, he comes south. We know that he brings a few things with him. His wife, Sarai, uh, the people that he accumulated in his ancestral homeland of Aram Naharaim or Haran, um, and uh, his wealth. The Bible specifically says all the wealth that he acquired or all the possessions he acquired in his ancestral homeland, and his orphaned, well, I should say his nephew Lot, Lot, L-O-T. Yeah. And so right there, the Bible's telling us the following. Uh, he comes with his wife and his family and the other people, and he's a wealthy man already. And uh, he takes a person of which we know one biographical fact about. The only biographical fact we know about Lot is that he is an orphan. His father died in Haran. So he takes the orphan with him. And then he comes to the land of Israel and there's a famine and he has to go down to Egypt. And when he goes down to Egypt and he succeeds in Egypt, he says he comes back more successful, but something else happens. Lot comes back a wealthy man also. So under the duress of Egypt, Abraham empowers and enables his orphan nephew to do that. And that teaches us that we need to empower people who are less fortunate in society to earn their own living and become independent on their own, which is what happened there. That's a precursor story, I think, to the Jewish economy or the biblical economy. Okay, so let's stress test this idea a little bit, because um, you did skip over one juicy detail, how Abram became wealthier in Egypt was by um, prostituting out his wife for fear of his life, right? So he has this kind of, he seems to be violating the very covenant that God has made with him, because he fears and doesn't trust God and, and hands over her baby making parts. But uh, God prospers him anyways through that, uh, through that process. And so I wonder... Um, a, I think a lot of people will instantly think, well, which parts of Genesis do we take to be prescriptive for economic thinking, and which do we take to be merely descriptive? And you know, there's obviously some aspects of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and especially Jacob's life, um, that we want to say, no, that's not the way you prosper. Yeah. So I think the Abraham story is complicated. The different commentaries. Some are critical of him, like Nachmanides and other praise him for what he did. And what happened to his wife is actually not clear from the scripture itself uh, as to what exactly happens to her in the in the hands of Pharaoh uh, there. And, you know, part of what I chart in the book is uh, Abraham becomes wealthy on multiple occasions and through multiple means, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one of those, by the way, may be government contracts in Egypt. Um, mm. And so, uh, and, and, and the Bible is not, uh, in my view at least, uh, judgmental of that there. We're supposed to learn from it. I mean, we can try to decide whether we think it was a good thing or a bad thing. It is another path to wealth, um, I think, in the biblical eyes. And, there, and, and Abraham is a uh, forerunner or precursor uh, to, to a Jewish nation. You know, the Bible understands that there are multiple paths to wealth. Some of it you do by hard work. Some of it you do through government connections, right? And uh, the question is what we do with that wealth. And Abraham then uses it when he leaves Egypt to call out in the name of God and, you know, uh, underpin his wealth and his influence in society with uh, faith-based principles. Um, whereas Lot then goes to be a selfish man in Sodom and Gomorrah with the wealth that he has. And so it's hard for me to tell you whether the way Abraham acquired his wealth in Egypt is prescriptive or descriptive, because I don't think scripture says that uh, one mm -hmm. way or the other. Um, I think what we do with the wealth is, is most important. And, you know, 
Uh, as I point out in the book, Andrew Carnegie wrote a whole uh, book, a treatise on, on wealth. Um, and what he was concerned with is what we do with it, not how we acquired it, um, which may be fit for Andrew Carnegie, but you know, there may be also a biblical <laughs> lesson there as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I feel like the Torah would have lots of things uh, to say in a kind of ethical matrix of proper and improper ways to acquire uh, wealth and to maintain farmsteads, et cetera. You keep using this word wealth. And I think a lot of people are going to like, they're going to flinch at that word um, because that sounds, I think, in at least in the American West, the, uh, the word wealth often means riches, right? And so I wonder if there's some kind of, uh, you know, I know in, in um, Christian, some Christian circles, um, wealth means uh, setting setting a standard for what is enough and then giving everything above that or something like that. But uh, what do you mean when you use the term wealth? Yeah, you know, I, I, the, term, the term I prefer is prosperity, but it's harder to define or yeah. prosperous. Um, and I use wealth to contrast to Carnegie. That's why I use the term uh, as such. Um, hmm. but, but I don't think, um, I, I think one of, one of the points of departure between Christian thought and, and, and Jewish thought is, is on this topic. Um, you know, Jews historically, although I take issue with this in the second volume of the book, you know, tithe, um, but you keep 90% of your wealth, right? The tax is 10% or, or 20% in biblical times. Um, but I don't think, uh, Jewish thought and, and the Hebrew Bible puts limits on wealth. In fact, uh, Nachmanides in a different portion points out that one of the blessings given to the forefathers is that they should be prosperous uh, and wealthy. And that's how you spread blessing. And I think that's the view of the Torah, which is uh, you should try to be as successful as you can, but it should be used to empower other people. We're not going to tell you how to do it um, because kind of a prescriptive exact recipes for how to uh, empower other people or, or, or give it away generally doesn't work that well. Mm. Um, but but we're going to set a moral and ethical expectation that part of your job is to make other people more prosperous, therefore grow the pie and make society more prosperous. And if we do all this while acknowledging uh, God and, and the God-given principles of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible, we can create a model society. Okay, so who can you give us uh, an example maybe that many people would be familiar with of somebody who think does this really well, maybe a corporation or an individual who's who's been successful doing this? You know, I think uh, Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, uh, really stands out um, as as uh, a leader of this. You know, in, in the heart of the pandemic, he committed Salesforce resources. Um, and people can be cynical and say it was good branding, but, you know, it's not that cynical if you send plane loads of, of health supplies to, you know, foreign countries, some of whom are customers of your product, some of whom aren't. Um, I think he was way out front on something that I think is completely non-controversial, which is equal pay. If you have a woman in the same job as a man would do, they should be paid the same amount, you know, mm. not some other relative amount. And I think he's he's really worn it out on his sleeve, uh, this notion of, of real ethical underpinnings of, of business. And in a in a what I call timeless values way, and um, I think he's done a really good job of that. So going back to the issue of um, of uh, charity or giving alms, um, maybe we should return to the current situation in Israel in a minute. But um, certainly, you have passages that say things like, um, "If your brother fails or falters with respect to you, right, you are to take him in and and treat him." 
as you would a foreigner, interesting, as a gayer there, right? Um, so uh, you you wouldn't see that as charity. So where would you classify that in the system? I, I think it fits, but I'd like to hear how you, you think it fits. First of all, the usage of the word brother in those cases, I think, is not accidental. Uh, you know, I chart this in the book of Leviticus, which is where it appears most often. And, and you're supposed to treat them like a family member. What would you do with a family member? You'd bring them into your home. Um, and you would empower them. And, you know, part of what the, the words that the Bible uses is don't leave them alone. And in Hebrew, hakim takim imo, lifted up with him. What is that if not empowerment? And ironically, as you said, he used the word ger, which is foreigner, sojourner, not non-citizen. That's our expectation is if we want to create a model society, we need to engage and treat people in the same way we treat our family who are all around us in our neighborhoods and societies. And it's about lifting those people up and empowering them to get on their own feet. I think you see this in, in a lot of places, by the way. Uh, now, ironically, there's, there's, there's no jail system in the Torah. There's always one case where they put somebody in, in jail where, where he cursed God, right? But other than that, even if somebody is, is guilty of manslaughter, right? He murders somebody by accident. We send them into a refuge city. And what do you do in the refuge city? Who is he living with in the refuge city? He lives with the Levites who are the teachers of the people, the people who serve in the temple, the spiritual guide, guidance counselors, so to speak. And they're supposed to teach him. And, you know, and the Talmud tells us that you know, his rabbi goes with him to the city. The point is we want to rehabilitate people, stand them back up. And I think that's, that's very core to the nature of the biblical uh, approach, is get people back on their own feet as quick as possible uh, through economic means, through social means, et cetera, and less so through charity means. You know, one of the... One of the things I take issue with in the second volume, which is again still in Hebrew, uh, it's loosely titled so far in English, Everyone Can Be Moses, um, is that one of the big differences between Adam Smith and the, and, and the Torah is the following. So Adam Smith has a hard time explaining beneficence or you know why people should do good to other people. Yeah, real, real quickly, can you give a snapshot of the Scottish, uh, philo- I guess philosopher is the best term for him, um, yeah. like why he's important in our thinking here. Yeah. Yeah. So Adam Smith is, I think, broadly considered the father of capitalism. And he is uh, essentially the inventor of the phrase not exact of the invisible hand that we used to talk about the capitalist system, where many people acting uh, for their self-interest will generate economic growth because people are uh, interested in improving their own lot and getting ahead. Uh, the baker makes bread not to give it out, but to make money. And uh, if each of those people do it, so the economy kind of sorts itself out and and, and grows. Um, and one of the problems with Adam Smith's theory, and he readily admits it, is he's not sure why people are charitable. Why? Where does beneficence fit in all this? Right. It, it doesn't make any sense. He goes further to say that a society can live without beneficence, but it can't live without justice. So justice is a precursor or a or, or, or a foundation for every society, whereas beneficence is not beneficence, meaning charitability or, or just doing good out of altruism. He, he does kind of say there that, you know, maybe people get some psychic value out of this, which, which provides some value to them. I think, I think the Torah, the Bible does not think that way. Uh, as a matter of fact, in fact, when the Torah describes Abraham, it says that he's chosen because I know he will teach his children the way of God, the way of the Lord. Um, and he will teach them to do uh, tzedakah, which people translate as charity. Uh, I think it's empowerment, um, and uh, or and and then justice or legal justice, mishpat in in Hebrew. 
And that comes before, right? The charity or enablement or empowerment comes before uh, uh, justice. And the question is why? Um, and I think what the Hebrew Bible is after is human dignity. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of the core tenet. We believe in human dignity uh, and, the, and the human being's ability to rehabilitate his human dignity. And dignity comes in a few ways. It comes from feeling a part of society. It comes from having economic independence. Um, it comes from not being treated uh, poorly um, when you're down on your luck, but rather uh, treated like a human being. Um, and it comes from working. Um, and that's the expectation. You know, we, we, everyone talks about Shabbat or, or the Sabbath. That's one day a week. I had a rabbi used to say, last I checked, it says to work six days a week and, and rest one day a week. And, you know, six days a week is a very important part of being human. And so I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the the, the, the Bible's viewpoint uh, on this. And, and beneficence is about dignity and human dignity. And without people feeling dignity, society comes apart. And that's why I think that's actually the precursor uh, to justice and not something that's just a throwaway as in Smith's thinking. Hmm. I, it, l- oh, let me summarize. One more thing. And, and, oh, I, yeah, and I would ahead. add that the more we empower people and give them dignity and the ability to get on their own feet economically, the more the pie grows so that even the baker who wants to bake money to bake bread to make money will make more money because, you know, the person is not going to live on, uh, you know, on dust of the earth. He can, he can make his own living and buy bread. I assume that uh, this kind of like dividing the pie versus enlarging the pie discussion, you would see this in kind of one primary metaphor in scripture is the fruitfulness. The idea, even in Deuteronomy 28, that everything you put your hand to, if, if you follow this justice and righteousness, I'll make everything fruitful for you. And, and um, you even get some of this in the New Testament gospel teachings, right? This kind of tenfold, hundredfold, like if you do these things, it'll be more and more fruitful. Absolutely. I, I think this is exactly the view when society uh, is connected um, and, and, and empowered, good things happen. You know, there, there's there's a great uh, Rabbi Isaac Donna Barbanel, who is uh, a great commentator of, of the Bible, and he was the finance minister or the secretary of the treasury of both Spain and Portugal uh, before the expulsion from Spain, the Jewish expulsion from Spain in 1492. Uh, where he finally found himself having to leave Portugal uh, and go uh, ultimately to Venice uh, in Italy. So uh, he asked the following question. He says, if you read um, the critiques at the end of Leviticus, and in I think it's Deuteronomy 28, I can't remember exactly. um, He asks, why is the uh, reward for doing the Lord's bidding, why why is that like economic prosperity, right? That's what it says at mm-hmm. the end of Leviticus, if you follow my laws, so you'll have fruitfulness. Well, I think um, the laws create cohesive society. The laws create empowered society, so the bounty grows. And in fact, if you read the end of Leviticus very carefully, you'll see something that looks a lot like a pandemic, right? It first mm-hmm. describes that you'll have a, a virus, with, which includes, by the way, fever and uh, dysentery, mm-hmm and coughing, right? And that exposes the rifts in society because what happens is when people get a scarcity mentality, which often happens during things like a virus or a pandemic, they begin to fight with each other over what they perceive to be a scarce resource. And that rips society apart. 
Whereas if you keep social cohesion or social empowerment, you can grow the economy. And therefore, you will have 10 and 20 and 100 fold uh, to do that. And the same, by the way, is true militarily as as the Bible describes right afterwards. It says um, 50 of you can chase 100 and 100 can Mm -hmm. chase 10,000, right? Well, how does that happen? Because if you're cohesive and you have a cohesive army, you can knock down and, and defeat larger armies. But if you don't have social cohesion born of everyone feeling a part of society and having dignity and feeling empowered, then it kind of comes apart. I don't know anybody mm-hmm. who's ever happier, by the way, because you redistributed them some income. They're happy when they're contributing. Most people get, get, get comfort and happiness from contributing. Yeah, as I was reading your book, um, I actually lived in Scotland uh, for a while, twice, and they were in- implementing universal basic income uh, right at the time we were living there. And to see how some teenagers were taking an off-ramp out of high school in order to get onto universal basic income and basically do nothing for a few years as a plan for life um, was quite discouraging for several. And it was discouraging in general, but also because you knew the implications of those kinds of decisions years from now for the society, not just for those individuals. I, I can't get over this universal basic income. You know, I, I talk about it in the context of the Garden of Eden in the book, which was, I think, the first experiment with universal basic income. But it's so painfully obvious that people, given uh, an opportunity to have subsistence level income without working, will opt for that and not become creative. This nonsense that Mark Zuckerberg is is putting around, where he said it in the Harvard commencement address, I think, if I remember correctly, that you know people given subsistence level income, universal basic income, uh, will become more creative. In my view, is utter nonsense, hmm. um, and I think there's been Many experiments throughout history that, are, that that have shown that to be the case. People create out of necessity and drive born out of a hunger, not out of indolence. And so um, I, I just don't get it. Yeah. And uh, you put forth a pretty strong case uh, against it in your book on, on Genesis. And I, I, I would actually like to see the strong case for it from a theological perspective, for a Christian or a Jewish perspective. I can imagine some weak cases that people might want to make uh, from the New Testament. But I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they would hold up. Anyways, if anybody out there is listening who wants to send us a strong case, I'd, I'd really be interested in reading that. Um, going back, uh, and I, I want to. I want everybody to make sure that they caught something that you did that I thought was very interesting. I make this point about jail all the time. Imagine a system of justice where there is no incarceration, uh, no actual incarceration, to the point where. Jerusalem, when Jeremiah is is thrown into jail, he has to be cast into a cistern and sink down into the mud, right? Um, and that's in 586. The uh, But you put that in conversation, correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of paralleled that with when your brother falters with his means with respect to you, lift him up. And you said in the same way, when somebody has committed some kind of crime, they need to repay that back. It, there, there seems to be an assumption, you steal a sheep, you're going to have to get four back that you're going to have to enter some kind of system of work in order for that to happen. Um, and, and and you even saw like the cities of refuge uh, wh- where the Levites are, which I'll remind everybody, the Levites do have the option of strapping on a sword and going, and going through the camp, right? I mean, they're, they're not harmless uh, spiritual guides in some ways. Um, but you saw it as a kind of grander project of encouraging the lifting up of the entire society and community. And this is part of this program of enlarging the pie. And, and it seems to me that you're, what you're saying is this, is this is a mentality that we actually have to appropriate 
in order for this to happen. I think you live in Israel, and I think uh, there's a way in which you can you can conceive of Israel as a small, you know, we're in this together. Although there's all kinds of conflicts, and um, anybody who reads Israeli newspapers uh, knows that people disagree about things vehemently in Israel. <laughs> um, but I wonder, in some some place like the United States, uh, like is this is this actually possible? And what's what's the path that would actually eventually get us down there, or maybe things that we could renew that you think uh, work well uh, to get us down that path of having this mentality? I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, really, really glad. So let's just start with this: um, the incarceration system in the United States is not working. The amount of work being done down in criminal justice reform should just tell us all this is not working. The amount of recidivism which is people who commit one crime, spend time in jail, get released, and then go back, uh, is immense. Why? Because if you're in jail with other criminals, you're going to learn bad behavior. What, what else are you going to learn? Uh, you're not about people who can help you rehabilitate and get back into society, offer you a job, offer you an income. It just, the system uh, doesn't work. Uh, not just that, but I think this notion, uh, particularly in a fast advancing technological economy, that if people get thrown out of the workforce, they can just kind of get back in is is silly. Um, we need to find training programs. And if we think the government is going to be able to train people, I got I got news for you. They won't. They never have. They generally don't. We need civic society and other businesses to go train these people to create uh, redundancy in labor and, and, a, and a broader labor force for 21st century uh, jobs. And now the question is, to your point, Israel is a pretty high solidarity society, despite the tones of argument. Now, the tones of voice and arguments in this country, on a relative basis, I think to most countries in the world, we have high solidarity. So the question becomes, uh, what's working in Israel that may not be working in the large country like the United States right now? So I'm sure this is going to be uh, a, a point of um, dispute with a bunch of your listeners, but I actually think they need to reintroduce mandatory military service in the draft, mm. or at least mandatory national service in the United States. There's no reason that a kid who hits 18 should go straight to college and not donate at least one to two years of his life to the country. Not only that, they got to get out of their hometowns and go to other parts of the United States so they see other people. The only way to connect people across a large country is to create a face-to-face social network, not one behind screens, where people see how other folks are living, pitch in mm-hmm. to help in those communities and have influence on them or be influenced by them. And, you know, the two places for that, again, like in Israel, in my view, is the military and national service. It's how you also co- create a cohesive set of, 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 uh, of, of ethics and, 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 and national aspirations. And so that's, that's certainly one thing. I think the second thing is we need to be able to test things um, in, different, in different communities. Uh, there was a, a mayor um, in one of the southern cities who I had the fine fortune of spending four or five days with uh, at a mayor's conference in Europe, one of the southern cities of the United States in this conference in Europe, uh, who said that she wanted to turn jails into opportunity centers and was looking for a way to to do them. But mm-hmm. it's actually really hard to maneuver that legislatively. And there is, you know, there needs to be a way to be able to test out new ways to get people back on their feet, both economically and out of the criminal justice system. So we can run tests. If we can't run tests quickly, We'll never learn anything. And so I think we need to kind of relax a lot of the regulatory infrastructure around that. And then the third thing, in my view, is um, about employment. And and this is, if, if you're a company making money, like if I was Congress today, instead of this, you know, let's increase the corporate tax thing, I'd actually provide tax rebates to any 
highly profitable business that wants to train more employees. Because if you're highly profitable, you're highly successful. And if we got, right, there's, there's a big jobs mismatch in America right now. We got a lot of people unemployed and a lot of jobs open because there's a skills mismatch. Well, what if we went to those people who have open jobs and said, hey, if you train these people, we know you're a public company, you can't hit your bottom line, we'll give you a tax rebate. That's a way to grow the pie, right? Because these people will then earn more money, pay more income tax, it grows the pie. You need a longer view of this, which I'll come back to in one second. But tax rebates to companies that are successful and will train employees for higher paying jobs feels to me like a really good idea that creates responsibility. I think part of the problem is people of faith believe the world is getting better and take a longer view that even if it takes a little longer and there are ups and downs on the way, the world is getting better. Politicians and particularly shrill politicians are both judged at the ballot box every two to four to six years. So they want results right now rather than a long view. And they want headlines. And most often they have a kind of negative view of where the world is because they're kind of constantly being challenged on this before an election time. And so we don't get a long enough perspective. We don't get an optimistic enough perspective as the ability of good people to do good work. And and worse, um, we're optimizing for the wrong thing, which is a headline rather than human prosperity. And, and that troubles me. But I think that, mm. I think in there is maybe a solution. Well, sorry for that uh, long-winded answer. No, it's it's great, and uh, I think you've given us a lot uh, to chew on. And if you wet our taste for your book, uh, "The Tree of Life and Prosperity" uh, by Michael Eisenberg, thank you, Michael, very much for your time and your wisdom. Thank you, Drew. I really appreciate this opportunity, and uh, look forward to seeing you in Jerusalem soon. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian Scripture. For more. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.